0: We must remember and remind each other and the world at all times that everybody's life matters. That's right. Everybody's life matters. And we cannot just allow Goliaths to throw people away.
1: Welcome to the For the Love podcast with me, Jen Hatmaker. Today, we are talking about the brokenness of the criminal justice system with activist, Cece Jones-Davis. Hi, everybody. Jen Hatmaker is here. Welcome to the For the Love podcast. Super happy to host you today. Right now, we are in a really special, really important series called For the Love of Black Lives. This is really the only conversation I want to host right now, and we are in a moment of cultural reckoning, honestly. And these are the conversations that we need to be listening to and learning from and ultimately implementing in our lives. And so today, we are going to talk about something that very starkly divides our country into a couple of very different experiences, depending on the color of your skin and depending on how much money you have. When I say the words justice system, they land differently depending on who you are. If you're white, possibly those words might make you feel safe. They might fill you with reassurance that good will win out and virtue is baked into the system. But if you're Black, if you're a person of color, hearing the words justice system might at best make you roll your eyes or at worst fill you with terror because... It's anything but just. So according to the ACLU, while America claims only 5% of the world's population, we have 25% of the world's prisoners, most of whom are incarcerated for nonviolent drug offenses and disproportionately, and I mean wildly disproportionately, include women and men of color. In fact, the NAACP tells us that black women and men make up 14% of the US population, but they make up 40, 0 percent of the incarcerated population. And every single reliable data point tells us that black people do not commit crimes to any greater degree than white people. The actual, the committing of crimes is proportional from one community to the other. So it is not true that Black people are inherently more criminal. It's that they are more criminalized. So our justice system is a big conversation right now. What does it actually look like? How was it created to function? Where are its blind spots? How is it affecting real lives whole communities, and ultimately generations. The state of the criminal justice system in the U.S. raises serious human rights concerns, okay? So this is why we're going to talk about this today. And we're talking about it with someone who's doing the hard work of pushing for criminal justice reform. And I am so glad you get to hear from her today. I I think your experience is going to be like mine. Like During this whole conversation, I was just leaning forward in my chair kind of riveted. Today, I just was absolutely locked into every single word I was hearing from my guest, and her name is Cece Jones Davis. So Cece is a, well, she's a worship leader, she's a speaker, she's a writer, and she's a social advocate. She's a graduate of Howard Yale Divinity School, and the Yale Institute of Sacred Music Worship and the Arts. She's also a member of the inaugural class of Princeton's Black Theology Leadership Institute. I mean, she's got some serious credentials. Cece works at the intersections of faith, worship, and social justice. And she's a passionate advocate for racial healing, for women's and girls' issues, and as I mentioned, criminal justice reform, which is what we're talking about today. I'm really proud of her. This is a force to be reckoned with in our world right now. She currently also serves as the teaching pastor at The Table in Oklahoma City. This is a powerful conversation. It is packed full of emotion and stories and data and and best practices and action steps. So this is all in here. You may want to go over to ginhapmaker.com and take a gander at the transcript page because there's so much in it. We have it all written out for you over there. It's underneath the podcast tab, which is also where we'll have everything linked to Cece, who she is, where she is, how you can follow her, plus every single thing that she mentions, every resource, every person, every book, every story, every documentary, we'll have it all linked over there. So that'll be a one-stop shop for everything you hear over the course of the next hour. And I'm so glad that you are here. Get into a quiet place where you can just listen. And I am delighted to introduce you to Cece Jones-Davis. Cece, I am just absolutely delighted to be talking to you again. And welcome to the For the Love podcast. Oh, dear. So glad to have you. Thank you.
0: I mean, it really is just an extraordinary honor to be on the For the Love podcast. Like this is the highlight of a really, really hard week for me. And so Mm -hmm. I can't even tell you how much I appreciate you talking to me today. Thank Mm -hmm. you.
1: I just want to say something real quick that my listeners can listen into as well. I just told you this before we started recording, but I want to say it publicly again, that I deeply acknowledge in gratitude the amount of emotional labor that you're offering us today by doing so much heavy lifting around racial justice and injustice and what a burden that is to bear as a mentor, as a leader, as a a woman of color. And so what I see you doing is offering this to our community Mm -hmm. as a gift and it is a service Mm -hmm. and we deeply, deeply receive it with grateful hands. And so I honor you today. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Jan. I just wanted to say in response, you know, just that acknowledgement is a gift to me because I don't know that there's a lot of people that understand the toll, the toll that social justice takes on a human. soul. thank you for saying that. That means a lot.
1: You're welcome. I wonder if we could just start here. Would you mind? I have filled in my listeners with a lot of your your background, your work, your credentials, your very impressive resume. But would you <laughs> mind talking taking us back a little further and tell us kind of high level, you know, who you are and where you grew up and kind of a bit of your origin story before you got to this place that you are now.
0: Yes, I would love to. I am from a little town in Virginia called Halifax County. It's a couple of hours away from Jamestown, Virginia, where in 1619, the first enslaved Africans arrived Mm -hmm. in the United States, or what would become the United States. Um, My town was a plantation town for many years. The main crop was tobacco. I grew up in a time that felt... Still very The word that comes to mind is kind of slow. I don't mean that in a negative way about where I'm from because I love where I'm from. But, you know, growing up there in the 80s felt like the 60s. You know what mm. I mean? There was still a yeah. lot of segregation. It was really clear to me and my twin sister that we couldn't go to the country club pool to mm. swim. There was a black side of town, a white side of town. There was black churches and white churches. And you were polite, but there was not a lot of integration. And so, you know, I grew up with wonderful parents, modest folks. You know, my mom was a school teacher. She was the first in her family to go to college. Father was a professional landscaper. And my grandparents played a tremendous role in my life. You know, that kind of environment, that southern farm town environment really is special because we believe really deeply that it really does take a village to raise children. And mm-hmm. so I have lots of good people in my life. And my parents were so generous in letting people nurture us and love us. And so Mm. we had grandparents. My maternal grandmother, her name is Leola Easley Graves, had a really interesting story. I remember going with her to work and she was a domestic, a maid. You remember seeing the movie Help? That was my grandmother. And so Mm. she worked for one of the most wealthy The wealthiest families in the state of Virginia, in our town. And what was interesting was that this family, they were the descendants of the ancestors that owned my grandmother's ancestors. And so she, she worked for this family and I would go with her to work and she worked for the matriarch of that family. Her name was Miss Dolly. And she would scrub Miss Dolly's floors and Cook Miss Dolly's food and do all these things, and we were related to the Edmonds family. We were related to this family because, you know, some of the males in the Edmonds family had taken advantage of their enslaved their property, the women who were their property at that time, and so we were all our bloodlines were mixed, and so we had a really interesting (sighs) dynamic, and we still do to this day, very interesting. (sighs) So my grandmother did that work in the day. But then she'd come home, and sometimes we would come home, and there would be people crying on her porch. My grandmother, we, sometimes we knew these people, and sometimes we didn't. But she would invite them in, and they were there because someone in their family had died. My grandmother, as a ministry, wrote obituaries for much of the Black community for 30 years in my town. And that was because so many people in her generation were still illiterate. And so her way of serving and giving back was to write for them. And you know, they would come in and and it makes me cry. They would come in and she would say, tell me about them. And she would ask me or my sister to get her Manila's writing pad and she would sit down and they would start telling her about their Hmm, love.
1: That's so dear.
0: And she would write out Hmm. these beautiful, beautiful words about people that she did not know. And I don't care what the profession was. I don't care who the person was. By the end, my grandmother had crafted a story that was so dignified. And so beautiful. And you would have thought these people were kings and queens. And that was her contribution. And so everyone came to her to be their scribe and to be their voice. And that was growing up in that way was extremely impartational for me. And so when I left that my town, I went to Howard University for undergrad. And I had really felt called to ministry as a kid, but I didn't have examples of female preachers. So I didn't, that all seemed really scary to me. And I wanted to avoid that the best way that I could. But once I was in my last year at Howard, you know, it was very clear that I could not keep running. that There was nothing for me to, I couldn't run anymore. And so I applied to Yale Divinity School and I got in. And so I went to Yale for their Masters of Divinity Program, and I also was a part of the Institute of Sacred Music, Worship, and the Arts, because that's what I've always loved for mm-hmm. the music and, and worship. And that's kind of what everything that I've ever done has kind of flowed out of. My journey through Yale really helped to open my eyes to the fact, you know, ministry is so diverse. It doesn't have that's to be right. way. And really gave me an opportunity to grow into my ministerial skin and that's where i understood you know probably really consciously for the first time that that the gospel is a social gospel i don't have just a responsibility mm-hmm. to what i do in four walls of a of a structure in terms of how i worship god but i have an immense responsibility in terms of my witness what mm-hmm. what, what does my life say what does my life say about what i believe and so that really was, has been My journey, the beginnings of my journey. Yeah.
1: Thank you for telling us the story of your grandmother. I am never going to forget that. I will never forget that. Of her just saying, tell me about him. I mean, I could just cry. How are you doing on self-care right now? Have you been getting enough good food and moving your body? Nobody knows more than me. It can be so tough. But I have a great tool that helps me be my best, most healthy self. It's called Noom, N-O-O-M. You know that I love Noom. I've talked about it a lot. It helped me develop just healthier habits around choosing foods that serve me, like that feel like a gift to my body. And a big thing that it's done for me, it helps me be mindful about moving my body because I work from home and I sit at a desk. And so... Noom has one of the biggest and most accurate food databases around, which makes it really easy for me to think about what I'm eating and turn the dials to make sure I am, I am serving myself. It has been a game changer for my mindfulness. I don't have to second guess how I'm caring for myself. I can see it in my Noom app every day. And it takes some of the up and down and in and out emotion out of food and wellness We all know that small steps make big progress. So sign up for your trial today at Noom, that's N-O-O-M, noom.com slash for the love. Do this for yourself. Visit noom.com slash for the love to start your trial today. Noom.com slash for the love. Okay, guys, back to our show. I love hearing about your legacy and how it moved you through your young adult life. I really would like to hear you talk a little bit more about that growing understanding at Yale that the gospel is a social gospel and the way we live our lives is the way we live the gospel. Can you talk about that a little bit more and how that ultimately moved you into social justice work, particularly uh, around abolishing the death penalty?
0: Yeah. You know, growing up in the Black church, the Black church has always been the hub for all things civil rights and social justice for the Black community. You know, that's been our go-to place. That's been it for us. I made a choice to come out of the Black church when I was a teenager, because I wanted to do this new thing called multicultural worship, right? And so as a teenager, I came out of the Black church and I kind of dove into white evangelicalism. In that world, my experience was that I did not find much to do, much talk about justice or, you know, social issues or you, you guys know what I'm talking about. Yeah, of course I do. And so, you know, I lost that, to tell you the truth. After I left the Black church, I I lost it. And it was at Yale that I was reminded, oh, yeah, like God does have something to say about the world. And it's not just that, you know, everybody's going to hell. Like, you know, God has something profound, profound, not just to say, but a a work that that he's not just suggesting, but requiring from us you know, what does God require, but to do justice, love, mercy, and walk humbly, you right. know, and Yale reminded me of that. Yale reminded me that, that my faith cannot, can't just be a personal thing that, you know, I've got to do more in the. I've got to strive for more in the world than to stop cussing and don't drink and, That's you know, being at a certain time and, you know, manage the number of boyfriends that I have, uh-huh. you know? that God requires something more, more of me than those things. And so what I really was interested in and really kind of how I started my social justice ministry, I had a really strong passion for HIV AIDS, which as, huh. at the time was you know, really rampant in the uh, African-American community. I started volunteering at a hospice close to Yale, an AIDS hospice, and that's... That's the experience that broke my heart for issues that impact people. And ever since then, Mm -hmm. God has used issues to break my heart and to call me deeper into humanity. And that, you know, those issues have been AIDS. It's been, you know, criminal justice. It's been the death penalty. It's been the ways that women and girls suffer suffer around the world just because they can't afford tampons and and pads. Mm -hmm just the most ridiculous thing and breaks my heart, you know. So he's used these kinds of issues to remind me that I can't live in my own bubble. And even though I'm fine and cozy and all is well in my world, my neighbors are struggling. My neighbors are suffering. And I'm going to have to I'm have to do something about that
1: as best Uh as I can. That's a good word. Okay. So CC, this is kind of a big we'll start with a big idea and then we'll kind of parse it out and f- break it out into some different pieces. So obviously, the words justice system, as we've mentioned, super loaded, super loaded. Because if you're a, a black woman or man in this country, you've spent your entire life thinking about the justice system in one way that your white counterparts would never. And the word justice ends up losing its integrity. If you're a black family or you have black kids, you have to teach them a completely different set of guidelines for responding if they are stopped by by the police. And we're watching these cycles of injustice play out in the lives of real human people right now. And so this is a really big question. And I just, I don't know how to chew this one. But I wonder if you could just high level the state of the justice system today and then maybe begin explaining why Black women and men make up a huge, disproportionate part of its population in the prisons.
0: Yeah, Jen, let me tell you first that, like, I'm so not an expert in criminal justice. I'm just, you know, a woman who, found something that needed some attention and yep. you know, said yes to it. But I have learned so, so much along the way. I mean, you know, when we consider the problem of mass incarceration in the United States, you know, Brian Stevenson of EJI, Equal Justice right. Initiative, you know, talks about how slavery didn't end, it just evolved. And the... The current state of what slavery looks like today is mass incarceration. The United States has something like five percent of the world's population, but yeah. almost twenty-five percent of the world's incarcerated population. That's we, right. The first problem is that we incarcerate the most. And we incarcerate way too often. We're leading. The That's world. right. When we think about the fact that you know we spend billions and billions of dollars jails and prisons. When we consider yes. the, that in the 70s, there was something like 200,000 people incarcerated in the U.S., but today yeah. there's are 2.2 million. I mean, right. and Gosh. on top of that, you know, how our uh, criminal justice system is impacting our most vulnerable, how they're impacting minorities, including women. I think, right. you know, 1980 and and 2017, the number of women in jails and prisons in the U.S. grew by 750%. This is a massive, massive problem. And I am so deeply grateful for the experts, for people like And Stevenson yes, and his too. work with Equal Justice Initiative and th- that information that I that I just shared, those statistics mm-hmm. can be found at eji.org. But I'm so grateful that people have been working at this for literally decades, That's and right. now we're starting to pay attention. And I think it's because we can't ignore it anymore. You know, we have stories that are emerging and catching our attention and breaking our hearts yes. and we can't turn away from them anymore. We've got Khalif Browder, you know, yes. we've got Central Five guys out of uh-huh. New York, you know, who were wrongfully convicted. So the issues, you know, of the rates of wrongful convictions in this country, the rates of putting children in adult prison, The excessive punishments we give, and I know you know where I'm living right now, Oklahoma was is between first and second for mass incarceration in the United States. That's got a lot to do with how we think about punishing people. You know how exactly how punitive our systems yes. are. So if you write a bad check in Oklahoma, God help you. You know. What I yes. Mean? Like, People just are sent away and put away and their lives are destroyed for these nonviolent infractions. And so you have these excessive punishments. You have terrible prison conditions. People are in solitary confinement. You know, and for me, that's one of the worst things, solitary confinement. Mm. When we think about what it's been like to be in our houses and confined during Mm, coronavirus, and we think about how folks are confined to these little bitty cells. Oh,
1: it's so cruel
0: for not just days not just months like us yeah. for years and years oh. and years it's you have to wonder what we as a society believe is going to yes. emerge from such an experience do we think that a human soul can survive and emerge well when they've been locked in the dark for 20 years oh. i mean what do we think is coming out of that so you know these are some of the things that really really bother me Obviously, and I know we'll talk more about it, the death penalty, but these are some of the, the problems that we know exists now with the United States criminal justice system. Because I think a lot of us have lived under the impression for a really long time that we've got it all together, that our system, you know, works all the time. That, you know, that we've got the biggest and the brightest and, the, and and it's a part of the whole idea of American exceptionalism, I believe. And it's a problem. It's The, the problem is rooted in how we think about ourselves as Americans. And so <sighs> therefore, the, how we build our systems out. You know, we think we're the best. We think we're the brightest. We think <sighs> when other countries are tearing down their prisons because they don't That's have the right. to put them in. You know, that's
1: right.
0: So, we need to get honest and real, and we need to look outside of ourselves. We need to look outside of our country to models in other countries that are doing this better than us.
1: Yes, they are. There are so many other countries who have such a completely different. Structure, they meet people in their need with care, with recovery, with mental health support, with community support. And these are tried and true measures for actual repair. And I really appreciate you saying that step one here is admission that for so many people, right now just feels like a, it feels like a reckoning, like a national reckoning in so many ways. And what I am seeing is for a lot of Americans almost a very early stage of having to confront our favorite idea, which is American virtue. We love that idea so much. And we were taught that ideal. And that was the version of history I know that I learned in my schools. Right. And so having to confront that and, and admitting maybe for the first time, we are not doing this well. And the data is clear. This is broken system is a really important first step because then there's possibility Mm -hmm. on the other side of just Mm -hmm. truth telling, I think. And that's feels like I feel those winds kind of rippling through our culture right now. And I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful for what they might produce. Speaking of Oklahoma... Before we, we're going to parse out some more on some of the incredible things you just said. But right now you're working to commute the sentence of a man named Julius Jones. He's on death row in Oklahoma. And of course, I have seen his case garner so much attention recently. I mean, gosh, everyone from like... Kim Kardashian to Blake Griffin and Russell Westbrook, a lot of people are talking about Julius. Can you discuss him a little bit? How did you hear about him? Why did you get involved in his case? And what are you hoping to gain for him?
0: Absolutely. Thank you for asking about Julius. Yes. So two years ago, I was watching TV and I stumbled upon a docuseries called The Last Offense that was produced by Academy Award winner Viola Davis and her yes. husband, Julius Tenen. It highlighted the criminal justice system and issues in the criminal justice system. And that night they were focused for three consecutive episodes, they focus on a man named Julius Jones, who in 1999, he was a freshman on an academic scholarship at the University of Oklahoma. He was a, had been a star basketball player in high school. His mama was a school teacher. His daddy was a cement mason and a football coach. And during that summer after his freshman year, he was arrested for the murder of Mr. Paul Howell, who was a white and prominent businessman in one of the suburbs of Oklahoma City called Edmond. And the docu series just really laid out some really hard things. And this, of course, would have been almost twenty years. This story was coming to light almost twenty years after right. the, the actual crime. So Julius had been on death row, you know, all that time. But Viola Davis had partnered up with the Innocence Project to identify the most troubling stories in the United States. Hmm. And one of those was Julius Jones. And the issues, you know, there's so many issues related to his case that people can watch the docu-series for themselves at JusticeForJulius.com. But the the issues included the fact that he did not have a proper representation. Julius had an attorney who passed away right before his trial was to take place. And so he was given three public defenders who had never had death penalty experience, didn't seem you know very motivated. And when the prosecution rested, they literally stood up in court and said, We rest. They did not call anybody to the stand. They did not provide wow. any information. They did not
1: they didn't defend him.
0: They didn't defend him at all. Mm-hmm. And these folks were on the docuseries talking about the fact that, yeah, we did we did a terrible job. I had never heard lawyers say that about themselves. Wow. That was mm. terrible. I could say more about that. But moving on, a woman who had been a, a juror came forward some years later and said that this case had really bothered her and that another white juror referred to Julius as the N-word during the mm. trial and Something like they should just take the N-word and shoot him and take him and bury him in the back of the jail. And that juror remained on the jury to convict him and sentence him to death. Of course. And the the truth of the matter is there's a lot of question about whether Julius Jones even fit the the description. The co-defendant definitely fit the description. And he was the one who testified against Julius and had been Heard bragging in prison about pinning all of this on Julius, and I mean it's just been a huge mess. So I watched that and I couldn't sleep, (sighs) and so I googled his attorneys' names and I called them the next day. They were in Arizona, and they said, and I said, "Hey, my name is Cece. I'm living in Oklahoma. I saw this. This is horrible. You know what can I do?" And they were like, "You know, you're such a nice lady. Write a letter." You know, I'm like, I wrote a letter last night. Like, what can I do? You know. And so long story short, I posted on Facebook and said, hey, did anybody else see the last offense? We formed a community meeting to talk wow. about it. And at that community meeting, his family showed up, his mother, wow. his mother and his sister wow and his mother. When, I, when they walked in, I just had a really strange experience with them. When they walked in, I could just kind of feel and, and see the <sighs> weight of the whole death penalty on these people's shoulders. It was just oh like they pre- they presented with kind of like a, they were kind of just bent over in posture, <sighs> and bent over in, in, in spirit. And they came in for the meeting. And I remember holding the mother's hand throughout the meeting. And I can't say why, I, I, was just, I don't know this lady. So I don't know mm-hmm. why I just held onto her hand, but I just held her hand for the entire meeting. And they said, thank you. We left. And a really quick story, Jen, because I really think this is how God speaks to me. So we all leave this event and I go home, relieve my babysitter. My daughter, she's eight. And she says, mom, let's go get something to eat. Let's go to Olive Garden. I love okay. Olive Garden. She's never really been a big fan, but I said, okay, cool. Let's go. And it's in a spot where you could go to any restaurant because there's restaurants all around. We walk sure. into this place. They sit us down. It's a completely empty place. And who sits across from us? It is the Jones family, the mother what? and the sister at the same time in the same building on the same wow. side from each mm. other when we could have been sitting anywhere. Wow. And they, mm. we speak, they leave. And my waitress comes to say, they said, thank you so much. And they mm. paid for your bill. Now, when I say that, I know that so many people hear me say that and say, like, well, that's a nice thing, but I'm going to tell you the way that that weighed on me, I knew in that moment God was saying, keep going,
1: wow. keep going.
0: And I sat there like these people had written me, a, you know, a check for thousands of dollars or something. I yes. just sat there and cried in my spaghetti. I just, oh, man. so that was the, that was the beginning because I realized that these people, they needed a voice. They needed support. They needed somebody that would be the scribe for them. They needed somebody Mm -hmm. to tell their story. You know, they needed somebody that would lift them up and help to restore dignity and honor and grace back to their experience and back to their lives. They had been quiet and silent and not heard for all of these years. And so that's how it began. And it's been the hardest thing I have ever done trying to get somebody off death row. I can't even describe. I can't even (sighs) describe.
1: I am hanging on every word you are saying right now. Can you tell us where you are? Where's the case right now?
0: Yeah. So in October of 2018, was it 18? 2019, Julius filed a commutation application with the Pardon and Parole Board. And so basically what he's asking is for them to re-review his case, look at all of the information, even information that was not available at the time, have mercy on him and grant him time served. We desperately believe that Julius Jones deserves that. And yes. so we are, we are me and all the celebrities that you named, yes. and an organization called Represent Justice. Scott Butnick, who's the producer of the movie Just Mercy, we're all fighting to try to get this man home to his family.
1: What is there anything that we can do, all of us who are listening to this right now?
0: Yeah, for sure. First, you know, I really would love for people to go hear his story for themselves. Again, it's justiceforjulius.com. Watch the docuseries that got me all fired up about it. You can sign mm-hmm. the change.org petition that at this point, I think has almost 6 million signatures. You Gosh. can send a letter to the governor and to the pardon and parole board asking for mercy for this man. And you can stay with us. You know, we really need people to keep sharing on social media. So follow all of, you know, Justice for Julius stuff on social mm-hmm. media. You know what I what I tell people all the time is take a piece of this. Take just a little piece of this as your personal responsibility because if we all if we yeah. all do that, just take a little piece then it doesn't it doesn't land on just a handful of people and you know, more people are aware, more people know about it and we can get more done.
1: Discovering the story of your family, it matters. And there are many paths to finding your family story, whichever way you choose, whether you trace your family generations back with a family tree or uncover your ethnicity with ancestry DNA, it's easy to get started with ancestry. So an Ancestry DNA test tells you where your ancestors are from. And Ancestry's billions of records and millions of family trees let you discover your family's personal stories. It's crazy how much information you can find. You might discover you're related to someone famous in history, or you might find a photo of your great-great-grandmother and see you have her eyes. Obviously, family is everything to me. And when I took my own Ancestry DNA test, I found out that most of my ancestors are from the UK and I had no idea. Start exploring your family story today. So head to my URL at Ancestry.com slash for the love to get your Ancestry DNA kit and start your free trial. Okay, so that's Ancestry.com slash for the love. Okay, back to our show. Do you feel like the wheels of justice are moving forward at all for him specifically for Julius? Are you getting any traction?
0: Yes, I think the fact that it's come to light and the ways that it has and has built such such a momentum, but there is definitely wickedness in high places, and so you know when we talk about when we talk about coming against an entire system. When you're talking about coming against an entire system, you are talking, I am talking about coming against the good old boy network. I am talking about coming against racism. I'm talking Mm -hmm. about the criminalization of black men before they have stepped out of their houses. You Mm -hmm. know, I am I am talking about people who are really, really powerful and who won't gain anything for letting the truth out. And so it is a David and Goliath situation. Yes. I-, I want to be very, very clear. And, you know, not to get all churchy on you, Jen, but I have to tell mm-hmm. you that one of the main components to this justice work for me is intercession. If I didn't have people with me, who I could drop to my knees with and ask God and God's angels and whatever else to go before us, there's Uh no way in the world we would have gotten this far. So I 100% identify with people who have struggled against systems for so long. Yes. It is gruesome.
1: I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about what racism looks like baked into our justice system. You mentioned it's not just the good old boys club, which is an apt description. It is Goliath and it is operating exactly how it was designed to operate. So it's not a mistake that we have so much racism and injustice inside our justice system. That's literally how it was created to function and it's doing, it's right on time. And so this, again, is one of those things to use your earlier bit of wisdom is an admission. We start here with admission because I think there's an idea of virtue and justice inside the system that we, especially white people, can count on, especially if they have money. If you're a certain kind of person, you can count on the justice system favoring you and being on your side, something that you can believe in and count on. That is simply not the case. And so I realize this is a huge idea, but can you talk more about what racism looks like seated inside the system from top to bottom?
0: Here's what I can say. That it's not just about race. I want to acknowledge that it's not just about race. It's about poverty. Poverty, too. Right. Bryan Stevenson always talks yeah. about, you know, you're better off if you are rich and guilty than, than poor and innocent in this country. Yes. And yes. that's the truth. And I think that's yep. one of the factors that we did see play out in the poor defense of Julius Jones. Uh, When you think about our whole tough on crime policies that really were born out of the era where drugs were rampant in the United States, when you think about how crimes related to drug trafficking and drug use, the, the fact that today we look at the opioid crisis as a health matter, Where in the 80s and the 90s, we looked at the crack epidemic as a criminal matter. When you consider who those populations impact the most, that, you know, crack was, um, quote unquote, a black drug, opioids, a white drug. When you think about how differently we approach those populations, that speaks a whole lot to what goes on among the disparities right in the criminal justice yes. system. Think about back in the day the sentencing if you were caught with crack as opposed to cocaine. You know, exactly how many you know, there was a lot of black folks with crack, a whole lot of white folks with cocaine. If you had cocaine, right. you had a better sentence, if a sentence at all. When you think about the fact that a lot of states have abolished the death penalty because they realize that historically it is a racist practice. And so yeah. there are so many things, you know, and I don't even have time to tell it all, but the, in terms of sentencing, you know, when you think about, think about Jan marijuana, yeah, think about how, marijuana, you know, was a a terrible crime and the worst thing somebody could do. And if you were caught with a little bit of marijuana, these black men who were selling marijuana went to prison for decades, yeah, years and years and years and years. And you think about how marijuana has become now an industry. That's right. Who is benefiting from that industry the most? That's right. Right. White folks. Right. It is not Mm African-Americans. And so the industry is now trending. When so many Black men have lost years and years of their lives because they had a bag of marijuana in their pocket.
1: That's right.
0: It's outlandish. It's Mm. outlandish. One of the worst stories I'll tell you quickly, one of the worst stories that I have ever heard, but one of the most beautiful and profound stories as well. Anthony Ray Hinton, an African-American man in Alabama who spent something like, you know, 20 plus years on Alabama's death oh, yeah. row for a crime that a simple ballistics test could have proven he did not commit. But because his life didn't have enough value, they let him rot. They let him sit there and rot. He wrote a book called The Sun Does Shine. It was on Oprah's book club and everything. And On days when I feel really disheartened dealing with racism and and death penalty and criminal justice reform, I turn him on and I listen to his book or I listen to one of his speeches somewhere and he energizes me because I I remember that now, okay, these are human beings whose lives have meaning and lives have value. And if our governments don't believe that if our governments don't lean into that if our prosecutors and AGs and DAs and etc our governors etc won't lean into that then God's people must uh-huh. we must remember and remind each other and the world at all times that everybody's life matters that's right everybody's life matter and we cannot just allow goliaths to throw people away we just
1: cannot I met Anthony Ray Hinton at EJI in Montgomery and he had been very recently released and walked into the room. And I just, I'll tell you that I I just, I'll never forget it. And he spoke to us and told a story and we just gathered around him and just put our hands on him and sobbed and prayed that God in some miraculous way would restore to him all those stolen years. Oh, I'm sorry. I could cry again. I, know. I saw, you know, I saw it on him. I saw it on his body, on his face. Yeah, and yeah. Brian Stevenson is a, is an absolute hero. I'm so happy yeah. that you keep mentioning him. Almost nobody has taught me more about the justice system and he's a tireless, tireless yeah. champion. Yeah. This is real this is important. I'm sure also one of my greatest resources to learn about this in the most just intricate way was Michelle Alexander's book, of course, New Jim Crow, Mm -hmm. which is dense. Mm -hmm. It took me a month Mm -hmm. to get through it, but this is real and this is happening on our watch. I wonder, I know there are people listening right now, Talking about the justice system, and it the inequity and inequality built into it, it flattens me in my chair. It's yes. one. It's it. It is. It's one of these things that I'm like you. Like I'll I'll just cry myself to sleep, and it keeps me up at night. For people listening who are disturbed, as we should be. What would you just suggest, be it a resource, a place to learn, a place to volunteer, whatever you want to offer, whatever you want to suggest. Mm -hmm. If someone says, I would like to either know more or do more in my own community, like where I live, in my city, in my state. I would
0: suggest people see if they can do, start with your county jail. Some county jails allow folks to come in and do a tour. Get in there and look around at the conditions. Now, some That's county good. jails are better than others around the country, but get in there and get a sense of what does it mean to be incarcerated, right at a basic level. That's the easy one. Another thing I would really encourage people to do is find your reentry programs in your cities or towns and volunteer, because you will be working with, first of all, professionals who've been doing this criminal justice reform work a long yes. time, probably. But you'll also get acquainted and come into proximity, right? Another thing that Brian is always talking about, coming into proximity with people who have been in the justice system. So when you talk about Mr. Hinton and you being able to see that on him, to see the impact on his face and the impact on his body. When you come into and be able to meet eyes with people who have these kinds of experiences, it changes the way in which you think about how crime needs to be handled in this country. That's right. When we start to humanize people who have been uh, involved in the justice system in the United States and you're able to hear their stories and see their faces and then maybe participate in helping them get back back integrated into society, Uh. that is a really, really powerful thing because then it really informs what you think about the whole process. And it really, for me, you know, reinforces what I said earlier, which is that people have value. People may yeah. not have always made the, the right decisions. And there's some people that have done some horrible things. I'm not denying that in any way. shape, uh-huh. But people's lives still have value. And yes, I do. what yeah. can we do to help restore folks? We need better restorative justice practices in the United States. And I would also just encourage people to read, you know, look at other You know, Google restorative justice models yes, and compare those to what you see us do in the United States. I think if we knew how to fix it in the United States, I think it'd already be fixed. I think it's our pride. Again, that American exceptionalism thing that keeps us from believing that somebody somewhere else has something to offer us. We can get some good information from some other folks outside of the United States of America.
1: What do you know? What do you know? That is indeed possible. And I think those are fantastic first steps. And I'm so proud of you and grateful for your work. And I'm really moved by Julius and committed to using MySpace also to work toward justice for him. And, you know, one thing that we're seeing right now in our culture is that when we raise our collective voices loud enough, we see change, yes. and so it's not small. I really appreciated what you said about take one little piece of this, just one. You're not responsible for the whole thing. Just if you'll, if we'll all take one piece of it and yes. make it known clearly, loudly, this matters. This creates change. It's not small. No,
0: that's it. That's it. We have to because it's too heavy a burden for, for any one person.
1: But it's doable if we
0: all participate.
1: Yes, Amen. One of the best things I've ever done for myself is going to therapy. I'm in it now. It has revolutionized the way I think about myself, my place in the world, and my relationships. And listen, you can learn about yourself and transform your life with BetterHelp Counseling. So with BetterHelp, you can connect with a licensed professional counselor in a safe and private online environment You can start communicating with your counselor within 24 hours uh, via text or chat or phone or video. And if it's not a great fit, you can change counselors at no additional cost. And listen, you aren't alone here. So many people have been using BetterHelp that they are recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. I want you to start living a happier, more whole life today. As one of my listeners, you'll get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com for the love. Join over a million people taking charge of their mental health. So one more time, that's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash for the love. Okay, back to our show. Okay, we're going to wrap up here. And I'm going to ask you, Cece, a couple of questions that I'm asking everybody in the series. You can just kind of go top of your head here. This first one is obviously, this could go on probably forever. So you're just going to have to pick. But who have been some of your greatest role models?
0: My mother, my grandmothers, the preacher women who have guided me and mentored me along the way and let me know that it's okay to be myself and to be visible in, in ministry it has been yes. oprah and yes. brian stevenson and yeah. michelle obama it has yeah. been joyce meyer it's been so many people
1: it, that's just a few i love that it's so dear that the women in your lives have been the anchor Just Mm -hmm. the absolute, like, North Star in every story. Okay, here, how about this? Who are some, again, we'll have to just pick here, of your, like, favorite artists or teachers or leaders or thinkers that you would like us to be listening to and learning from right now?
0: Ooh, that's hard. Nelson Mandela, Richard Rohr. There's so, so many. Those are the two that come to
1: mind. Mm -hmm. Last question. This is a question by Barbara Brown Taylor, another priest that I really, I also love, by the way, that you mentioned the lady preachers. They have meant so much to me too. I also have some prophetic gifts like you and did not know that they had a home when I was younger. I'd never seen it. I didn't have any women in my life with that spiritual authority. And so thank you for naming them because they too have meant so much to me um, as models, as as role models, and Barbara Brown Taylor is one of them. That was a roundabout way to say that. Okay, this is one of her questions, and please feel free to answer this in any which way you want to, serious or not serious. Okay. Runs their answers run the gamut. What is saving your life right now?
0: You know what I'm loving right now? Oh. I vitamin therapy. Oh, because my diet is not the greatest, and. I know that I don't get the minerals and the vitamins that I need, like I need to. And so to like go get hooked up to a machine and get some vitamins pumped into my veins feels really good and like a really big self-care move. And so when every time I do it, I feel like I've done something so good for myself and like I might live an extra 15
1: years. I did not know that was a thing. Yes. Oh my God.
0: Yes. It's amazing. It's amazing. So you can go get, you know a bag of vitamin C or B, B complex vitamin mix. I mean, just all kinds of things. And whew, it's really good.
1: I'm gonna Google that the very second we get off this phone. Okay. <laughs> it's An incredible way to take care of our poor little lives right now. <laughs> Gosh, and you're there with a the toddler for Pete's sake. Ooh. Oh my this. come on world okay I just right before we hop off I want to just tell you one more time how grateful I am to you first of all for just being who you are in the world what a light you are mm. and for your tenacity to do really hard things this is your David and Goliath metaphor is spot on and yeah. you have chosen Take it on, and it's it's a weight and it's a burden and it's slow and it's full of enemies and obstacles. Yeah. And yet here you are, staying the course. Like I'm I commend you. I mean I really a deep bow. Thank and you. so thank you for bringing your work to my community. And I'm telling you right now, there will be a ton of us who want to jump into this fray with you. And so thanks for giving us handles suggestions, resources, places to help, ways to learn. You really, really resourced us today. And so I also want to say just one other thing that you said earlier, when you called on the the power of, of intercession, that I just, I'm telling you, you have my word that I will continue to pray for you in your work, in your state, in your calling, in your anointing. Thank you. You're welcome. And also, I commit to learning more about Julius and his case and also just using my influence too. We all have one little piece of it. And mm-hmm. so I'm I'm going to use my piece. <laughs> Thank I'm you, Jim.
0: We listen, and on behalf of his family and Julius Jones, I appreciate whatever little piece that you and other people that are listening take. You know, this is about for me learning, practicing, laying down our lives. I'm hoping that good things will happen for him uh, and that I'll be able to go do happier things. Um, But for now, you know, it requires somebody to lay down their lives for the moment. And I appreciate all those who, you know, will take a piece of this and, and help me run with it.
1: Perfectly said. All right. Until we finally get to be together... Once again, in this weird world, I'll look forward to wrapping my arms around you (laughs) when I see you next time. In the meantime, thank you so much for being on today.
0: Thanks, Jen. You've been the best. Thank you.
1: Okay. Powerful. That's a powerful leader. As I mentioned at the top of the show, every single thing that Cece mentioned documentaries, the people, the books, the resources, the leaders, we'll have it linked all in one place. If you go to jenhatmaker.com underneath the podcast tab, we have the entire transcript of this conversation written out for you, plus everything mentioned linked in one place. So that might be an incredible resource for you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for learning what you can learn about Julius and his story and his family. Thank you for taking your one piece Your one piece of injustice and saying, I will be responsible for this one piece. That matters so much. We have so many incredible leaders in this series who are bringing their considerable knowledge to bear on our community. And I'm so grateful. Like, we are lucky. We are lucky to get to kind of sit at the feet of these leaders of color. And so thank you for being good listeners. Thank you for being learners. I appreciate just the wisdom and the maturity and the passion that this community always brings to the table. I am so convinced that we can be a part of some of the most monumental change that our generation might ever see. So let's do our part. Let's own our peace. Thank you guys for listening. If you haven't already subscribed to the For the Love podcast, go take care of that real quick. And on behalf of Laura and her team and Amanda and I, we are thankful for you and oh so grateful to bring you this show every single week. See you next time.